Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to let you know that we are doing a donation drive in the month of May here at Working Drummer Podcast. A donation on PayPal or Patreon will enter you to win some great stuff from our sponsors, including a crushed snare drum, a stick and accessory package from Vader, a set of drum heads of your choosing from Aquarian, a pair of in-ear monitors from Session Ace, the new book Beyond the Beats, Rock and Roll's Greatest Drummers Speak by Jake Brown, or a Working Drummer Podcast t-shirt. Donating $10 or more on PayPal or 5 bucks a month or more on Patreon will enter you to win one of these prizes. Winners will be chosen at random on June 1st. If you donate on Patreon, this promotion includes all of the existing incentives there. Visit WorkingDrummer.net and look for the PayPal and Patreon buttons along the right side of the homepage. Thanks to all of our participating sponsors for providing these great prizes, and thank you in advance for helping keep Working Drummer Podcast going strong. Working Drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Welcome to Working Drummer Podcast, everyone. I'm Zach Albetta. Today, I'm talking with Montreal-based drummer, composer, and band leader Brandon Goodwin. Brandon is the leader of the original jazz group Bees Bees, which has just released two records in quick succession and is currently on tour. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also follow us on social media and share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We're reposting things pretty frequently there. Lastly, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. These days, in-ear monitors are almost required equipment for working drummers. Problem is, a lot of them don't sound very good, and the ones that do are really expensive. Session Ace solves both of these problems with high-quality dual-driver ears for $99 and quad drivers for only $199. Using a hybrid design combining armature and dynamic drivers, the frequency response is as good or better than anything you'll find up to $1,000. And the accessory package that comes with every pair includes cable extensions, quarter-inch adapters, and a huge variety of ear tips so you're sure to get the right fit and feel. Matt and I have been using these ears for a few months now, putting them through the paces both live and in the studio, and I'd recommend them to any pro musician who needs full, clear sound in their ears, but doesn't have a grand just laying around. I'd even recommend them to the cats who do have a grand laying around. Truthfully, I put off buying ears for a long time, and these saved me from having to drop a ton of money or getting stuck with bad sound. Visit SessionAce.com slash WorkingDrummer to check them out, along with the other tools and accessories SessionAce offers. Once again, that's SessionAce.com slash WorkingDrummer. So this was a great chat with Brandon. We discovered we had some things in common when it comes to our jazz drumming influences as well as our opinions on uh, the thing I always seem to be harping about, which is how to make jazz artistically fulfilling for the artist and approachable and accessible for listeners. So let's go to Montreal with Brandon Goodwin. We're getting ready to go on tour. We leave uh, in eight days, so uh, it's pretty much every second that I'm not um, teaching, gigging, or trying to practice these days it's, it's not uh, happening very much because of all the computer work but yeah i'm basically at the computer all day right now um just taking care of of business we also released an album last week so uh it's kind of it was kind of like a double hit yeah but, um, but yeah I'm, I'm good i have a i have i have a lot of i work with a lot of really good uh people who who know what they're doing and um I have my friends are very supportive. So, you know, I, I feel a little bit, uh, a little bit tired, but other than that, I'm, I'm pretty good. Good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering just what, what possessed you to do all this because, uh, you know, not only are you, um, you know, you're, you're the drummer in this band, bees, bees, you're the leader, you compose music for it. You decided to record and release two albums basically simultaneously and, Mm -hmm. and you're putting this band on the road. 
Um, so what, why, man, why, <laughs> what possessed you? You could, you could just be playing, you know, you could be playing sideman gigs in Montreal and, and, uh, you know, having a low key life. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I don't really know, actually. Um, I mean, I think I do, you know, I remember about 10 years ago, uh, I said to a friend, uh, that my my pretty much my most like pressing dream in life was to uh, have my own jazz group and to tour around the world and see the world playing music that that we had written. So that was and I kind of said it in a casual way, but I think uh, that it was always there. And mm-hmm. so basically, once this band started going and um, we played in Montreal a lot, we'd release our first record and, and um, we were really happy with it. It was played on the radio lots and it was very well received. And, um, and then I, I kind of just didn't know where to go from there. So, um, yeah, it was basically, uh, we, I went down to new Orleans with my girlfriend and when we were down there, I just said, I have to book a tour with the band to go to new Orleans. Mm -hmm. I have to bring the guys down to see the the city. So that's kind of what started this project with the, with the two album releases and the tour last year and the tour we're going on, uh, this week. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's kind of, it can be overwhelming at times. Like, um, sometimes I just am so tired and, you know, I, 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 I want to have a break, so I'll take off a, a day or two or we'll go camping or something. Right. And, um, but, but I, I actually just really love, um, what I do. And, uh, I, I love having uh, a project that, where I can kind of present my vision and my artistic vision. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also I'm lucky because the guys that I play with are so talented and they're also just so willing to, to work and to do all these crazy things. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it kind of inspires me to, to work even harder. Right. Right. So, if they're on, yeah. if they're on board with you, then that, that gives you the, some, some inspiration to <laughs> keep doing all that legwork. Yeah. Yeah. If they, if they weren't, then yeah, I, I probably uh, would have given up, you know, uh, a long time ago. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. so l- let's, let's talk about that artistic vision a little bit. Um, and these, these two records, um, uh, one is, is it Kanata? Is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, other, the other one is Dear Charlie, which is yeah. a tribute to the bassist Charlie Hayden. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about, about each of those records and, and, uh, what those projects mean to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I'll talk about, um, the, the Charlie Hayden record first because we released it, uh, earlier. Right. So, uh, we released that album in January and the, the story behind that project is that, um, a few years back, uh, I had been transcribing some of Charlie Hayden's liberation music orchestra, um, songs that mm-hmm. I really liked them. So I was just, you know, writing them out from the recordings, getting some ideas for arranging and voice leading and all that stuff. And, uh, at the same time, uh, venue got back to me to book a gig. So I just thought, okay, well let's, uh, let's do Charlie Hayden music. So, um, so, so we put together uh, a show of that and it went, it went so well that, um, one of the people in the band who's actually our mentor, he's a, he's a teacher at one of the universities in, uh, in Montreal at Concordia university. His name's Gary Schwartz. And he, he was playing guitar with us and he just said like, we have to keep doing this. So we've been doing uh, a couple of those shows uh, a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, when we got back from the tour and we were recording, uh, we just thought it was a good time. We, you know, we'd probably done like a half dozen of the shows and it's sort of with the same lineup. So, and we, a lot of the music had been the same from the beginning. So, uh, we'd rehearsed it and performed it a lot over the years. So, um, and that's so, how so, that happened. So back up a little bit because the, um, I think a lot of our listeners, uh, may not know who Charlie Hayden was. Um, this, you know, we've, we've had a ton of jazz drummers on, on the podcast, but it's not a, a jazz centric, uh, audience necessarily. So just talk a little bit about, about who Charlie Hayden was and kind of the place he held in jazz, because I, I think of him as one of those musicians who really transcended his instrument. I mean, he was a bassist, but the, the footprint he left on jazz, uh, goes, goes far beyond the bass, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, he um, he for, for me, he was just um, he had such a such an honest, genuine way of playing it, his instrument, which is, I think, what you're talking about, how it, he wasn't. He didn't. He wasn't kind of a, a chops kind of guy, and it was it was very lyrical the way right. that he played, yeah. and very honest. And I really felt like he was singing, which originally he was a, a singer. He started off his family was uh, singing on the radio, and I think he was singing from the age of three as like a you know professional. That's uh, right. Singer. And you're reminding so, me, like late later in his life, like right before he died a couple of years ago, he he did a record like with his family band, right? Of like kind, right. Of, kind of more bluegrass like four part harmony type stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he, he was, that's it. And that's the music he was, uh, he called it hillbilly music. Right. So, <laughs> right. <yeah>. right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm in Atlanta. I've, I moved to Atlanta two years ago and I'm, I'm getting, uh, uh more and more versed in, in the, <laughs> the art of hill, hillbilly music. It's great. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and about Charlie Hayden. So he, he performed with, um, you know, most of the greatest jazz artists in history, you know, just a, a huge portion of them. So, right. And, uh, he was extremely versatile. So, uh, he first became really well known playing with Ornette Coleman. So they, they were creating their own kind of type of, of jazz. And, um, they were rehearsing like every day at their house and really getting a thing together. So when they started performing that music, it kind of, it, changed a lot of, uh, ideas about, about jazz music. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so he, he, he definitely was, um, at the forefront of like going from the, the traditional bebop style of jazz and then pushing forward into new territories. So mm-hmm. he, he was a big contributor to that. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he also with his liberation orchestra, they were, it was, it was definitely a uh, um, kind of a political band that each album would have a theme and was based on um, different. Uh, how can I put this? Just you know, it's this this things going on in different countries like um, genocide and and politic political. Um, uh, sorry, I'm I'm missing my words right now. But up- upheaval. <laughs> yeah, yeah, upheaval. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. So. So he also was very outspoken about human rights. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always felt that he was a very, uh, he used his music um, as a voice. So that that always inspired me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the music on this record is is part partly Charlie Hayden compositions and partly original things? Actually, they're all uh, Charlie Hayden compositions, but we, we rearranged all of them. I gotcha. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And and is it uh, just kind of a cross section of his his compositions over the years, or does it kind of focus on on one thing he did? Uh, actually, yeah. They um, so on the on the record, uh, I think three of the tracks were from his Liberation Music Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the tracks was off of one of the Montreal tapes, which was when he played at the Montreal Jazz Festival. Um, and each night he had a different band, so they recorded all of the shows, and they're just absolutely incredible recordings. And so, "Blues in Motion" is from uh, one of those records. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the songs. Uh, I, I can't. Um, I can't think of it right now. My mind's blank. But there, there's also one more from a different, from another one of his eras. Um, and yeah, so so a little bit focusing on the liberation music orchestra but also just anything that was composed by him Mm -hmm. who are uh, a couple of the drummers that that were most closely associated with with charlie over his career either in the liberation orchestra or in uh you know other projects he did as a sideman were there a couple that jump out yeah um there was uh two that come to my mind very quickly there were there were a lot but um so ed blackwell was drumming in the ornette coleman group Mm mm-hmm and uh, I listen to that stuff all the time. And uh, yeah, Ed Blackwell, uh, his, his, he's such an incredible drummer. He, um, the way that he phrases and his time playing and his soloing just really blows my mind. He, he has such an original way of improvising. Hmm. Um, so so he was, he's a drummer that I really admire who played with Charlie Hayden a lot. Mm-hmm. And the other one was Paul Motion. Right, right. Yeah. 
Um, and Paul Motion was in uh, Bill Evans' first trio, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Scott yeah. Lafaro on bass, and yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. cool. So did you, did you kind of, uh, you know, have those guys in mind as you were making this record, as you were working these, uh, working these arrangements out, were, were they a big influence on you for this project? Uh, yeah, probably, um, more Paul motion because he played on, he played on a lot of the liberation orchestra stuff. Mm-hmm. So he was the drummer on a lot of those recordings. So, so when we were playing them, you know, sometimes his, his style would come, come to me. I would hear things and, and realize I was being very directly influenced by Paul motion. But, um, with, uh, we didn't really do any kind of stuff in the kind of the, the, uh, I guess you could call it the Ornette style. We didn't kind of go in that direction. So, I mean, maybe, uh, you know, indirectly or subconsciously, uh, I was influenced by Ed Blackwell, but probably definitely more uh, Paul Motion. Right. What are what are a couple of the kind of hallmarks of, of Motion's playing that, uh, mm. that that he was known for? Because he's a slightly lesser known guy. You know, there's your Tony and your Elvin and your Philly Joe and all that, and and Paul Motion is, uh, you know, not not quite as as widely known, especially among drummers who you know might not be that into jazz. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so his style, well, um, when he was playing with Bill Evans, uh, he, it was really, um, that group was really about kind of group interplay. Mm-hmm. So he, he had this really, um, great way of kind of conversing with Scott LaFaro and, um, Bill Evans where he wasn't just playing straight time. Right. You know, they were interacting. Um, yeah. so, so that's, that was part of his style early on. And he also, uh, just had a great swing feel and his, his soloing was, uh, impeccable, you know, great, great phrasing, very, very clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but later on, uh, I for, I'm not exactly, I think maybe around in the eighties, but he started, uh, playing more of a looser style and kind of simplified what he was doing into mostly playing, uh, roles and playing very, uh, it's actually hard to describe. Like, if you check out some of his stuff with, um, there's one album in particular uh, with Charlie Hayden, Brad Meldow, and Lee Konitz. I think it's Live at the Village Vanguard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're. I, I know which one you're talking about. I think, yeah. Yeah, and his his drumming on that record is uh, it's so unique and it's um, it's so playful and it, it he it's like he just kind of simplified what he was doing to really like the core of his ideas. Right. So, yeah. I was going to say like the uh, you know I was I was thinking back to the um you know the live at the village vanguard with the the Bill Evans trio and and how you were talking about um you know that that trio was really about interplay between the three players and and what motion did it, I mean it seemed like when you when you think about you know interplay or interaction from the drumming perspective a lot of it is is rhythmic it's it's rhythmic based right but i think it, what what paul motion did was more uh more timbrely based and more color based like he just kind of took a different approach of of interjecting his sound into the into the group dynamic yeah definitely and he he was thinking of it in a in a very melodic way and like you see yeah he wasn't um he wasn't thinking of his his role as a so much strict as like the the timekeeper so he he was, it was like he was playing a, a piano just like Bill Evans or something, you know? Right. So it's, it, it, yeah, that's it. He was very, uh, very melodic drummer. Right. Very cool. Um, okay. So talk about, um, this, uh, the, the Kanata record. Yeah. So, um, the Kanata record is, uh, it's all original compositions and, um, I wrote four of them and then the, the Julian Sandifer, the guitarist wrote one and Joe Farcuti, the pianist, um, he wrote three. Mm-hmm. So there's eight tracks. Um, and the, the four tracks that I wrote are a suite. So it's called Kanata suite and it's about the, the history of Canada. Mm-hmm. So just different events in Canada that have, um, kind of shaped our country and our things that are you know, the important things to, to think about and to talk about. So, um, it's kind of a, the, the overall theme is for, for my contribution is a bit of a historical one. Mm-hmm. And, but also I, I always like to note that the guys did their own thing. So it's not, 
I, you know, it's not the theme of the whole record, right? But uh, that that was my contribution, right? I was I was intrigued by this. I, I heard you mention that in the in the promo for the record, um, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the one of the principal um, jobs of of music is storytelling, and mm-hmm. um, I f- I feel that uh, you know, for better or for worse, jazz. Uh, departs from that a lot, or you know, it doesn't depart from it completely. But a lot of times, you know, the the storytelling is a a much more abstract idea of of that uh, you know of that concept. So um, I'm I'm interested to hear like what each of those four movements represent, and uh, you know the 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 points in Canadian history that you mentioned. Um, so yeah, just take us through like the the titles of those movements and what what each of them is kind of built around. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the first movement is titled Kanata, and uh, Kanata is the origins of Canada's, like our country's name, Canada. Mm-hmm. So uh, it came from the Iroquois, and it actually means village. So when um, the the settlers came over, they they took that word and they made it into the country's name. So it it does have a bit to do with uh, colonization and. Um, sort of the roots of, of our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second movement is titled Syrian Lullaby. So that was actually the first piece that I wrote for the suite. And, um, I was, I was, I was writing, I was trying, I was trying to get going with some new compositions for, for, to put out another album. So I was playing piano a lot and listening to music and, and then the, the Syrian refugee crisis happened and, um, and I mean, it's still there's still things going on today, but yeah. um, there was there was a lot of people were were coming to to North America. Mm-hmm. So I think in about in in one year, Canada, you know, brought in tens of thousands of refugees. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was and just watching it on the news and and seeing uh, what was going on, it really affected me a lot. So mm-hmm. so so. And I, that that tune, it was like, um, it's definitely influenced by the way that Charlie Hayden writes, and so it's. But it's definitely had kind of a sadder tone to it. Mm-hmm. So I decided that um, I would dedicate it to the Syrian refugees or to people who who uh, never even got a chance to to come here. So right. um, that's for them. Uh, and then Pipeline Blues is about ongoing. Uh, oil pipeline, um, you know, issues and that's it. It's, it affects everyone in the world because we rely so much on oil, Mm -hmm. but it also can do a lot of damage for the environment. So it's definitely, um, something that will just always be, uh, kind of a, a heated topic, um, for us, but it's a different, if it's a difficult one to, to conquer. So right, it's, right. you know, I'm not, I, that's the thing is I'm, I'm not stating any political commentary on it. It's just about these, these things that are, are happening to us in Canada. So just, you know, put it in people's minds to think about and to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then the, the final movement is called Liberté. So that is the French word for freedom. And so I live in Quebec, which is the the province of uh, Quebec. I live in Montreal. So Quebec is a French province. Um, And Montreal is roughly 50-50 English and French. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I've lived here for 12 years. So it's it's my home. Like, I just love Montreal so much in Quebec. And uh, I love the culture of Quebec. And, you know, I, I don't have any plans to leave soon. So that one is dedicated to, to Quebec and, um, and to the culture, the French culture. So yeah, talk about that, uh, culture a little bit of, of Quebec and and Montreal, because, you know, part of, part of what we like to talk about on, on the podcast is where people live and, and what life is like there. You know, we, we hear, uh, about drummers in, in Nashville and New York and, and LA, um, and those are kind of known quantities uh, culturally. But in addition to the music you're making and the work you're doing, uh, you know, we want to hear about about where you live. I've heard nothing but cool things about Montreal. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty awesome city. Um, like I said, I lived here for 12 years, and the first day I moved here, I just felt so comfortable mm-hmm. and felt like I was 
I was home for my adult life. You know, so <laughs> right. I, yeah. And for my music career. So, um, there's, um, there's a lot of stuff going on in Montreal. It's kind of, um, because it's close to New York city and, uh, it's also close to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things come to Montreal. So any, any sort of music or art, um, in the arts in general, um, is here. And, um, it's a, it's a very strong, uh, uh, art scene and the music scene is very, very strong. There's incredible musicians in all types of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jazz scene is, is incredible. Um, there's four universities here with jazz programs. Wow. So, um, there's two McGill university and Concordia university, which is where I went. And then there's two uni- French universities. So there's the university of Montreal and the University of Quebec. And um, they all have great music programs. And then there's also, um, I think there's th- two or three uh, colleges with jazz programs as well. So there's like, there's always new people coming to town th- for that. Right. But um, like myself, I didn't originally move here to go to university. I just moved here to play music. So then there's also just people who move here uh, just to you know, they're from, uh, I'm from a small town. I'm from a town of 5,000 people. So what you know, town is that? Armstrong. Armstrong. Is that also in Quebec? No, it's in British Columbia. It's on okay. the, it's on the West side of Canada. Oh, okay. So you, yeah. wow, you came all the way over. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was that or Vancouver or Toronto, but those cities are, are ridiculously expensive to live in. So, and um, oh, Montreal is, is more affordable. It's actually uh, very affordable. Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably one of the more kind of affordable, um, bigger cities, uh, maybe in, even in North America. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the the rents are pretty low, and uh, the cost of living is is not expensive compared to a lot of places. So right, right. Uh, that's I think that's why the art scene is so strong here mm-hmm. because generally speaking, artists. You know, we don't make uh, a ton of money, so often the if there's a city like Montreal that has a lot going on, but it's affordable, then a lot of artists will kind of flock there. Right, right. I mean, that's what that's what made New York New York. You know, there was there was a time when you could be an artist and be poor and live in Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and that's what that's what made it that you know artistic hub. Um, mm-hmm. And now I think uh, cities like Montreal and uh, Atlanta, where I am, and, and Seattle, and you know all these second and third tier cities are, are starting to come up with art scenes of their own because they're more affordable to for you know for people like us to have a kind of regular life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. it gives us a, that's it. it. Gives us a chance to have a regular life. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right. What, whatever that is. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just bought a house in Atlanta, and and for a couple hours before we got on Skype here, I was out in the yard doing yard work. So life is feeling pretty pretty regular right now. <laughs> there you go. You mentioned the um, recording process for uh, Kanata. Um, you, you you brought the band down to New Orleans. Uh, I mean, this was kind of before you started making the record. But uh, while while you were in New Orleans, you you got to work with Delfeo Marsalis, um, mm-hmm. kind of, and and he helped you kind of workshop some of this music and and develop a strategy for recording it, right? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what we did. So um, we, uh, you know, I basically. I needed a reason to bring us down to New Orleans and, um, Delfio is, uh, you know, he's one of, he's part of the Marsalis family is just a huge part of the whole history of jazz. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I thought about him, he was the first person I thought about, like if we could just have a chance to, to work with him because, um, he, not only is he a world-class uh, jazz trombonist, but he has produced a ton of uh, jazz records for his brothers mm-hmm. and uh, Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, and um, you know Terrence Blanchard and his father Alice Marsalis. Like right. so, so it was 
it was he was kind of the the perfect person um, to work with us because we wanted to work on our compositions, and um, he he's he's so gifted uh, with with jazz um, like harmony and theory and that kind of thing. He knows all of that as well. So, uh, but also with his um, knowledge of uh, recording studios from being a producer, right. Right, and so, this this uh, was what I was interested in. Like I, I I heard you mention it again in your in your promo video. Um, mm. What what kind of uh, uh, tools or strategies did he equip you with in terms of the recording and and production of this record? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, so so basically, uh, after we played for him first for quite a while through all the compositions and um, and he read the scores and stuff, but. Uh, the the second half of um, of our time with him uh, was spent at a, a computer with speakers and with headphones, and he he would show us recordings that he had uh, engineered, mixed, and and or produced. So just things that he had worked on, mm-hmm. and so he was giving us specific examples of. Um, so he would tell us, okay, you 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 could put the drums here in this the room and put the piano over there and here's what it sounds like with uh jeff tane watts on drums and you know kenny kirkland on piano and then he'd play a recording that he had produced with like the top jazz artists so as like the the perfect example of of uh why they set the things up as like they did and it just sounded amazing so right. um he showed us a couple editing things uh, which you can't, you can't really do editing with jazz recordings and you don't really want to because it's all about the, the live, the, the spirit of the, the live recording. So, right. um, but he did show us a couple of things that are possible and, um, yeah, he, he got us listening in a different way to, to jazz recordings. So, um, also talking about digital and analog and, um, yeah, placement of the instruments and which instruments should be isolated. You know, he was really serious about isolating the bass Hmm, and he would show us like, see, listen to this recording that I did where the bass player was in the room and listen to this recording where he was isolated. And, and he would show us like the differences and talk about why, why you would want one or the other. So, um, that's basically you know, what he did was just give us a direct examples from his, um, many decades of experience as a, as an engineer and as a producer. Right. And so, so what did you end up doing in the studio as far as isolation and placement and, and all that stuff? Uh, yeah. So, um, we, we were in the room we were in was a pretty good size, but, um, had my drums been in with the, uh, the other instruments, uh, I would have had to play a little bit more restrained than I wanted to. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just be able to play how I play and, you know, without um, having to, to think about that kind of stuff too much. So we uh, isolated the drums and um, I was in a room with like a, I don't know how high the ceiling was, 20, 30 feet. Wow. Um, and this drum sound was was amazing in there. Uh, and then we built an isolation room for the bass. So because of what Delphio was saying, um, about isolating bass. So we basically, there was kind of a overhang balcony thing. And then we built with using isolation walls. We, we built an isolation room for Alec, but where, where he could still see all of us. Mm-hmm. So, and then the, the guitar, um, the guitar was easy because he just, he had a room for the guitar amp. I don't even, it seemed like it was in a closet or something. I didn't, didn't really, uh, look in the closet, so I'm not sure what was going on in there, but, right. um, it sounded really good. And then the piano and the saxophone were in the big room, uh, together. So they were, they were pretty close to each other. Um, and, but they had isolation, uh, dividers up mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, so so that's how we did did that session, and I'm really happy with the sound of the recording. In terms of the the quality of recording, um, from things that I've worked on, it's it's one of the best sounding recordings that I've ever been a part of. So I'm really happy that it, our record turned out uh, sounding so good. Yeah, it does sound really good. Um, Thanks. And you you mentioned like I I just want to play how I play. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the hardest things for for drummers and musicians in general to to actually do in the studio um, because mm-hmm. it you know un- unless you spend tons and tons of time in the studio um, it feels kind of foreign you know because mm-hmm. most of our time is spent on stage you know mm-hmm. with people with an audience um, so you know when when you're in a room by yourself when you're isolated like you you mentioned that that being in a room by yourself would enable you to play how you play, um, which was kind of counterintuitive to me because I would think for like, for me, I would feel more comfortable playing how I play just in the same room with everybody, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sound issues, notwithstanding. Um, but did you have to, you know, uh, change your, your mentality or your approach to the drum set? If you're in a room all by yourself, like how do you play how you play? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question, and um, <laughs> I guess I th- I think it mostly I I know what you're saying and about being in the room with people, and um, we actually tried something like that uh, originally, but um, it it wasn't going to work. So I think in the sense of the room size. That's kind of why I was isolated. But had um, we actually went to look at another recording studio before this one, and the room was a lot bigger. So uh, yeah, I definitely would prefer to be out in the room with the rest of the band, right? Um, because there is something about just getting the the direct connection with each other and not kind of being separated in your own room. Yeah. Um, but I I think perhaps also because we had just gotten off a three week tour. And we kind of knew what we had to do. We we played together so much, and we'd also rehearsed the music for a year. So, um, you know, I, I it was kind of I kind of just knew what to do. I guess uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but um, well, I mean, when you've been yeah. you know, when you've been on the road with a band and you've been you know playing together every night, it's it's a mm-hmm. lot easier to kind of find that that comfort zone. Um, yeah, but. Uh, it, yeah, it was. It's just interesting to me because I think musicians are uh, even even live on stage. I think musicians are increasingly disconnected from each other or isolated from each other. Um, you know, especially with the whole everybody's using ears now, mm-hmm. um, and there are a bunch of reasons that I really like using ears. Um, mm-hmm. But it does kind of isolate you uh, yeah. in in a way that. Um, you know, doesn't happen if everybody's just hearing the same sound and and having the same air <laughs> going going in and out of their heads. Um, yeah, definitely. Is is that something you've you've uh, encountered either on stage or in the studio? Just kind of feeling isolated and having to find a way to connect. Yeah, definitely. Um, on stage, uh, not so much. I actually have never used in ears before. Good for you. So uh, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've I've always had a monitor next to me. And, uh, that's, I feel comfortable with that. So, um, I know, I know a lot of my friends are always kind of, you know, telling me I should buy some and, and start using them. And that, cause it kind of changes the way you're listening to the music. You mm-hmm. can, uh, you can hear things very clearly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why, but as a, as a jazz artist, uh, you know, generally there's as few speakers or monitors as possible. Like a lot of times we'll just have one or two for the band. Right. So, um, we, it's more like you hear acoustically the group. Right. Right. And I don't think, uh, you know, ears are really not necessary for most jazz situations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't start using them until recently when like, since I moved to Atlanta, I've been playing a lot more, uh, rock pop, uh, you know, stuff that ears are, are more appropriate for. Um, but, you know, all I, I spent years and years in Kansas City and, and L.A. playing mostly jazz, and most of those gigs just did not require ears. But I found on these rock gigs, you know, I would, I would be playing loud. It would be bigger venues, bigger crowds, louder music. So I would have my wedge, and since I was playing louder, I needed earplugs just so mm-hmm. I didn't hurt my own damn self. Um, so I'd have earplugs and the wedge blaring at me and, you know, the ears just solved all of those problems. So, yeah, I know that's, that's what I've heard. I do. Um, I mean, I do mostly jazz gigs, but I also play, I do play in a rock band and, um, but we're just kind of starting out. So, you know, we're playing smaller clubs and stuff. Right. So, um, I don't use the in-ears so much and I do play, I play with a, a blues artist 
who um, she's she's pretty well established. Um, she's been in a singer in Montreal for a really long time. And she was nominated for a Juno a couple of years ago, which is like the Canadian version of a Grammy award. Right. Um, so, but we play, um, we actually play the house of jazz. So again, it's like a small room. I think there's only two monitors for the band. Um, right. so I think it's just the plain situations that I do, um, don't really warrant, uh, the in-ears, but, um, you know, I definitely, if I was hired for any touring with a, a rock or a pop act, I would, that would be something that I would uh, consider purchasing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so how long did you spend in, in New Orleans with, uh, Del Feo? We worked with him for one day. Okay. Um, and then we were in New Orleans for three days. Cool. Cool. So, so like um, you had a solid day with him just playing and listening and, and yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah, it was cool. It was, uh, it was actually in his living room. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It was originally we were, we were going to, to rent uh, a space. So I was looking around for a good space and I found a couple and I don't know it, I was talking with his manager a lot. We were, we were working through her. Um, and so it eventually just, she just said, okay, well let, he said, it's okay if you come to his house. And, um, so we just worked in his living room. He, he was sitting on his own sofa and, you know, checking out our scores and stuff while we were playing on his piano and his drums and stuff. Yeah, so yeah, it was pretty chill. That's really cool. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and I'm curious, as you know, as someone who has lived in Montreal for uh, 12 years, um, you know, it's it's a French speaking place. Um, did you notice? Um, I mean, New Orleans is a, a French city, <laughs> basically. Did you notice any similarities or connections between you know culture in Montreal and and culture in New Orleans? Uh, other, I mean, they're not specifically, but they're both, um, in their own way, they're both very vibrant cities. So, mm-hmm. I mean, New Orleans kind of just shakes music, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really like infectious. Like I, I would love to live there. That's, uh, just such a beautiful city. And, um, yeah. So, but I think, um, I, I can't think of any, uh, maybe similarities between the two other than the fact like Montreal is a very vibrant city as well. It's kind of, uh, it also kind of infects people with its, uh, its, its culture. So, um, I guess that would be a similarity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, uh, you know, France and especially in Paris, they talk about, uh, you know, like the French lifestyle, the joie de vivre, the liberté, uh, egalité. And I, I feel like, um, Montreal and from what I hear about Montreal and what I've, what I've experienced in, in New Orleans, I think both those cities definitely, uh, carried, carried that over. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's uh very, uh, people, people move here so that they can be outside and, and meet people and, and do things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. which is also the impression that I got at, in New Orleans. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, NotSoModernDrummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I want to go go back a little bit like what where did you go to school what was how did you get into what wh- why jazz drumming <laughs> yeah um so so when i was in a in high school in british columbia in armstrong um we had a great a music program so i was playing in the the jazz band all through high school and um, playing drums and then when it came time to go to university my parents asked me well what do you want to do and uh you know, the only thing I, other than I was doing sports and stuff, you know, I, I thought about going and trying to make the basketball team or something, but I wasn't, uh, as gifted as sports as I was at music. So 
it was kind of an obvious choice. And, um, you know, I had, I had, I had listened to jazz and been playing in this jazz band where we were doing like high school level, uh, big band charts. So it wasn't a lot of exposure, but, um, when I decided to go to music school and there was a classical program or a jazz program, uh, I just started checking out, uh, recordings and, um, I bought a John Riley's, uh, the art of Bach drumming. Yeah. Yeah. And I bought all the discs at the back and I started, you know, it has all the des- descriptions of each tune and the forms and all right. that stuff. So I, once I decided that I wanted to go to university and to a jazz program, um, it was kind of like this hidden love that I never knew I had because it, I just right away started listening to it 24 seven. And, mm. um, I, you know, the, the Riley book, I still practice out of it every day. I was practicing yesterday for, you know, off the comping pages, just doing different things with them. So yeah. that, those books are, are, you can never really finish them, but, um, yeah, I yeah, got so, I'm, I'm trying to reconnect with it, uh, right now. One of my students in particular is, is, is kind of starting out and it's, it's good for me because I haven't cracked it in a long time. And, you yeah. know, he, he's seeing it for the first time and, and I'm not telling him, but I'm kind of going along with him, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, getting that, getting that back in my hands. Um, who was like the, so you're, you're, you're in the Riley book, you're listening to all these records. Um, who was, who was the drummer that like blew your mind when like you, you heard this drummer and you were like, holy shit, I have to do that. Yeah. Well, first, first band that I got really obsessed with when I was a kid was Nirvana. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Dave Grawl was, uh, he's a very, uh, he had a, he was very creative for the context that he was playing in, Mm -hmm. you know? I think so. Some people aren't so into his drumming, but I, I, oh, I'm, I still I'm totally to into his drumming. I love it. Yeah. yeah. He's uh he was very original and, uh, had a great sense of, uh, groove and, and, uh, just the overall sound. Yeah. Um, so he was a big, uh, big influence when I was younger and the red hot chili peppers, you oh, know, sure. Chad Smith. Yeah. Kind of that funk, funk, funky rock style. Mm hmm. Um, and then I got a, a friend of mine gave me a, a Led Zeppelin record. And, um, to be honest, at first when I heard it, I wasn't too into it because I think my, my ears weren't really ready for it. But, um, and then like a year after I got it, I, I put it on and actually, I remember I tried drumming along to a track and that's when suddenly I was like, Whoa, what is, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> what, what is this guy? What's this doing? What's he doing? And what is this? what is that sound that's happening? Because, uh, you know, I, I was listening to my drumming and his, and it was, it was like there were two different uh, instruments. So yeah. I slowly began to realize, um, how incredible of a drummer he was and also, uh, how incredible of a drum sound he had. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so then, yeah. So from Dave Grawl and Chad Smith to John Bonham, um, and then, yeah, once I got into the jazz stuff, it was like Max Roach, Art Blakey, Art Blakey is kind of my, my, my main influence in terms of like the spirit that he played with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he always had a, an incredible energy and, um, he, he was always getting people who, who were younger than him so that there would be a, kind of that fire in the music. So, right. Yeah. Which, uh, it's also, I kind of took that idea and I'm actually, uh, I think I'm nine years older than the other guys in the band. So really, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, you're babysitting. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Although they're, uh, they're all kind of, you know, wise, uh, you know, they, I also, you know, asked them to play with me because, uh, because they were younger, but they're also quite, uh, quite mature for their age. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You mentioned Blakey, um, because I, uh, some of the, some of the stuff, um, especially your compositions that I listened to reminded me a little bit of, uh, of horizon, uh, which was Bobby Watson's band. I, I studied with mm-hmm. Bobby in, in Kansas city in grad school and, and Bobby was a alumnus of, uh, of the jazz messengers, mm-hmm. um, in the eighties. So I don't, you know, I don't know if a, if a, direct line can can really be drawn there but it just reminded me that that a lot of your stuff kind of reminds me of that like you said that spirit it has like a young energetic spirit about it you know mm-hmm. and sorry what uh what university did you say you went to i went to concordia university 
in uh, is that in Montreal? Yeah, yeah, okay. it's downtown. Wow. Down, okay. And so, who who did you study drums there with and composition, and and who were the who were the cats there? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of great teachers at Concordia. It's the smaller program in Montreal, mm-hmm. um, but I liked it because the the faculty is really strong, and I was attracted to the fact that it had a small program because I knew that would give me more opportunities, mm-hmm. which it did. Um, so. Uh, but yeah, some of the, some of the guys there. There's a the first teacher I had was uh, Nasir Alkabir. So um, he toured with Dizzy Gillespie for a while, mm-hmm. and he's a real solid drummer. He also plays open handed, so it was pretty cool to talk to him about open handed playing. I don't play open handed, but we still kind of went into that a bit just to just to learn about it. Um, but the teacher who had the main influence on me at Concordia was. Uh, a drum instructor who no longer teaches there, but his name is Wali Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he went to Berkeley, I think in the eighties. And, uh, he, he's just one of the, the great, uh, jazz drummers in Montreal kind of playing on a regular basis. But he, he really got me listening to what I was doing as uh, music rather than, you know, I was practicing so much at that time, just, hours and hours and hours all day, every second I had a free time I was practicing. And he kind of got me out of that headspace of thinking about technical ideas and playing more musically. So he was a, a huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there I studied with a bass player by the name of Fraser Hollins. So he, um, I was playing drums. So we, we worked on our time playing and stuff. Uh, Fraser is, a in my opinion, he's one of the top bass players in Canada. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's played with a lot of really heavy artists such as Ari Honig and Bill Stewart and uh, Brian Blade. So three drummers that I really admire. He right. has played with them. Yeah. So that's why I took lessons from him because uh, basically getting the perspective from the bass player as to why he liked playing with those guys. Mm-hmm. So, um, so actually I learned a lot from him and, uh, and, and then why, we also why, stayed, why did he like playing with those guys? He, um, yeah, well he, you know, he talked about, uh, how, uh, the kind of the rhythmic playfulness of Ari. So yeah. how he can kind of just take a rhythm that you play and he somehow he's just goes somewhere with it. That's just so far out. Hmm. Um, and then with Bill Stewart, just his incredible uh, groove. So yeah. you know that 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 really special ride cymbal sound that he gets. Yeah, um, you know it's uh, I I've, I don't hear I've never heard anyone else who plays the ride cymbal like him. It's just so. Uh, I think he's one of the most unique sounding drummers in all of jazz. Like yeah, it, definitely. I and he was my guy. Like when I was in grad school, there was there was a summer when I was in grad school when uh, the John Schofield Trio record and Root did not leave my CD play. Like it was in the car. Just if I was in the car, I was listening to that record over and over. And, and as a result, I was like, I was a Bill Stewart clone for, for a little while there. Um, but yeah, just one of the most unique sounds in terms of like, not, not just in terms of the instruments he played, but like the orchestration that he developed, um, really a unique, cool sound. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that record because, that was after I got into Max Roach and Art Blakey. I, I, you know, it was at the time when we were still buying CDs and they still cost like, you know, 18 bucks or whatever. Right. Well, Canadian, the Canadian. But, um, so I remember I went and bought that CD not knowing what it was other than that it was, I heard about Bill Stewart and I knew about John Schofield. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, that car, that actually disc didn't leave my car for quite a long time either. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and speaking of Schofield, like some, this is something I wanted to ask you about. I, I, uh, got to ask John Schofield a question one day. Uh, he did like a Q and a before a, a concert. Um, and his, to me, his compositions are so, cool they're this perfect marriage of like funky accessible shit and and you know weird more conceptual jazzy shit um Mm -hmm. and and it really has appeal for for both sides 
Um, so I asked him if that was like a conscious choice, kind of a calculated, uh, you know, move. And, and he said, no, he said, I, I write and I play what sounds good to me, what feels good to me. Like you do that first. And then if it appeals to somebody else, great. Um, Mm -hmm. so he, you know, he kind of painted it as just kind of dumb luck that, (laughs) that he Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, straddles that line. Um, but, but where do you fall on that as a, as a drummer, as a composer, as a band leader? Um, are, are you, are you conscious of, of trying to make your music, um, as accessible as possible? Or are you more concerned with, you know, artistic expression and, and like you said, your vision for the music? Mm. I, I think, um, mostly when I'm writing music, I am thinking actually about, uh, if I, I think mostly I think about if I would want to play drums to this music, which <laughs> means do, do I like the music right. that I'm writing? Right. So, so sometimes I write something and, and I'll write it and it's, and it's finished and I, I really like it. But then I, I think like there's actually don't, I'm not, I wouldn't be inspired to play to this, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that's like a, that's a composition that won't end up on some sort of record right. or maybe one day I'll put out a record without drums and it'll be all my compositions of stuff that I didn't want to play to. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Have some other drummer do it. You do yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, but so, so that's, you, that's mainly it's music that I like to listen to and that, uh, that, you know, interests me, but also tells a story. Mm hmm. So, um, and in terms of the, the listener, I always hope that people enjoy my music. Um, and I think the, the way that I write music, it it makes it that it is accessible for people. Um, but I don't specifically write music with like someone in mind, like, Oh, I hope that people, well, I do. I always hope that people are going to like what I'm writing, but, um, it's not specifically for the listener. It's just stuff that I, I like and that expresses some kind of emotion or a thought that I have. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, like, as we were saying earlier, you know, attaching it to some kind of story or some kind of narrative um, mm-hmm. and, and letting the audience in on that, whether it's, you know, talking from the stage or putting it in the liner notes, um, mm-hmm. I, I think that goes a long way towards, you know, uh, towards accessibility. Um, because some, some jazz, uh, and I think it's always been this way, but, but some jazz sounds more like an etude than mm-hmm. a piece of music. Um, mm-hmm. they, you know, people come up with a cool chord progression that they want to solo over and they either, you know, just kind of shit out a melody that doesn't mean very much, or they intentionally come up with a really jagged, weird, nerdy melody that's, yeah. you know, <laughs> that doesn't mean much to most people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you said, I think attaching, attaching a story to it and, and, um, uh, like you were saying about Charlie playing earnestly, um, mm-hmm. and with, with some honesty and with some soul really goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. And, um, because, because jazz, unless it's vocal jazz, so I was about to say all jazz, there's, there's tons of jazz with singers. Right. Um, but if there, if it's an instrumental song, that's it. It could go, it could go both ways. It could go just here's a, you know, a melody that I like or that is challenging to play, or it can have something tell a story in some way, whether, you know, if, if all you have is the title to tell your story, right. Then, you know, at least you can get a thought out of someone. Um, you know, that's, that's basically, uh, that's basically all that we have as a as an instrumental jazz artist. It's trying to portray stories and emotions, but just through music. So, you know, generally you'll have one or two words and that's your one chance to get someone looking in that direction. And then, you know, they'll they'll kind of form their own story out of it, whether or not it has the same as yours. But right. Um, right. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking of like Syrian lullaby. No matter what that song sounds like, no matter what you choose to write, that gives people like two points of entry, right? Mm-hmm. This is about a specific place, a specific people, and it's a lullaby. It's that kind mm-hmm. of a piece of music, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they may not end up loving it, like they still have a point of entry to see like, oh, okay, let's let's see what this is about. 
Um, instead of some inside joke or some super obscure, uh, <laughs> you know, word or historical reference or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so yeah, I dig that. I dig that a lot. Um, well, cool, man. It was, it was great talking to you. Good luck on tour. Um, we will, we will post a, a link to, you know, your, your, uh, website so people can check out where you're going to be and when coming up here. Um, and, uh, safe travels, man. It was great talking to you. Thanks a lot, Zach. That's a, I really appreciate it. I, I really love your show a lot and I've listened to a lot of the podcasts. Oh, and, cool. Um, Thank you, man. I just have to say it was a real pleasure to, to hang out and to talk with you, uh, for, for, for a bit. Likewise, man. Thanks for doing it. Cool. All right. We will, uh, hopefully see you in Atlanta soon. Sounds good, man. Yeah. All right. All right. Be well. All right. Take care. So now it's official. I got to go check out Montreal. It sounds like a great town for music and arts and life in general. Check out Brandon with Bees Bees. They're on tour in the eastern United States right now. And you can check out some music and video at BeesBees.com. That's B-S-B-E-E-S.com. One of the incentives for donating any amount on PayPal or Patreon is access to bonus content at WorkingDrummer.net, uh, and that content is our guests listing their top five favorite records. And I gotta say, Brandon had probably the most interesting and eclectic list we've had yet. I won't give too much away, I'll just say that he went from Art Blakey to the Mars Volta in one move, so definitely want to check that out. Once again, May is donation month. PayPal and Patreon buttons are on the right side of our homepage. And donating enters you to win some great stuff from Crush, Vader, Aquarian, Session Ace, and that cool new book by Jake Brown. Big thanks to all those sponsors. We really appreciate their support, and we would love to have yours as well. Thanks also to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is back with you next week, so check him out. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.